Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone and welcome to episode 166 of the Criminology Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and this is Mike Morford. Mr. Morford, what's going on with you? We had a little break, man. How was it? It was good. I enjoyed the little bit of downtime. Although you and I both know there's no true downtime, but it was nice to step back and hang out a little bit with the family and taking July 4th celebrations and stuff. How about you? Yeah, it was great. We spent the fourth in Gatlinburg for my daughter's. Um, dance competition so we had a lot of fun and and it was nice to have a number of days off like you and i talked about off air we don't really ever have true weeks off you know like like we used to in the jobs that we had before you know when you had a vacation it was a vacation you didn't really have to worry about anything else but when you're a podcaster you kind of have stuff going on all the time now if you're not putting out an episode it's less work, but there's still always something to kind of keep track of. Yeah, there's deadlines and social media and people emailing, so you sort of have to still have all that going on. But again, I'm not complaining. I could be digging ditches, and this is a lot more fun. Oh, I heard you there, man. Absolutely. So let's jump in. Let's start with our Patreon shout-outs. We're seeing some great support. We had Just Angie. Danielle Dole, Ricky Sullivan jumped out at our highest level, Sherry Borg, Kaylin Strimbu, Anne Marie Hoff, Becca Feldot, Julie Todd jumped out at uh, higher than our highest level, Amanda Weber, Jill jumped out at our highest level, and Courtney Isabel jumped out at our highest level. So that's some really amazing support, Morph. Uh, it's much appreciated. Yeah, thanks to everyone for that great support. It means a lot, and we appreciate it. And if there's anyone that would like to help support the show, they can do it by going to patreon.com slash criminology. So, more if we definitely want to mention it again, we're hearing from a lot of people telling us that they're super excited about CrimeCon in Las Vegas in 2022. A lot of people have already booked their tickets. Yeah, we don't want anyone listening who's planning on going to miss out and we'd love to see you there. So don't wait, head over to crimecon.com and grab your pass for Vegas 2022 and use promo code criminology to save 10% on your standard badge. All right, buddy, we have all that out of the way. It's time to jump into this episode. We are covering two very similar cases with completely different outcomes. One case actually inspired a movie. And the other case is relatively unheard of outside of the area in which it happened. In this episode, both of the victims were teachers, and they both died in 1973 in unrelated incidents. The 1970s morph, as we know, was an amazing decade. A lot of different and important ideas came together to form a new kind of societal consciousness 
it's really one of the last few decades to truly be defined culturally. And we even look back fondly on it today. You know, when you watch shows like that 70s show or a movie like Saturday Night Fever, there's no doubt the 1970s were a little different, right? You're coming out of the decade of free love into the decade of disco and, and things were changing. You had a little bit more emphasis on family values. Um, you know, it, it was a, a decade that a lot of people look back at and kind of laugh at sometimes when you think of what people were wearing and the music and the disco. But, you know, there were some important things that happened. The wave of conservatism had started in the late 1960s, earning Richard Nixon a place in office, and it continued to grow strongly into the 1970s. While this wave of importance on conservative values grew, there was a subculture pushback, a sexual revolution. 1970 saw the first gay pride parade held, commemorating the Stonewall riots, and in 1973, homosexuality was removed as a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association. In 1972, Title IX, a federal civil rights law prohibiting sex-based discrimination in any educational programs receiving federal funds, was passed. Women's movements pushed for liberation of the self and body, and for the first time, there was widespread use of birth control, which was a relatively new invention. The 1970s was truly a decade of change, much of it positive, but not all of it. During this time, sex work became more rampant and cities worked hard to combat it. New York City was on the brink of bankruptcy throughout the decade with really no hope of federal help. People destroyed their own property, you know, their cars in order to get the insurance money to survive. The environment was still mostly unprotected. The Bronx River was a dumping ground for waste both household and industrial. The war on drugs was launched officially in 1971 as Richard Nixon declared drugs public enemy number one. In 1973, the DEA was created in response. In 1973, the World Trade Center's two twin towers were completed and at the time were the world's tallest buildings. By 1975, New York City's airports had plainclothes police officers handing out brochures welcoming tourists to Fear City with survival tips like not walking after 6 p.m. And we can't really talk about New York City in the 1970s without mentioning the terror that the Son of Sam murders brought. It was clearly a busy and tumultuous time, and in New York City there were plenty of reasons to stay home. Some people did stay home terrified of what lurked in the city, but others lived like there was no tomorrow. In 1973, 28-year-old Roseanne Quinn was a schoolteacher who lived in Manhattan and taught at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx. It was there that she taught a class of eight-year-olds. She was very involved and would often stay overtime to help her students or come in early to bring them breakfast. Roseanne Quinn was born into an Irish Catholic family in the Bronx. She spent her teenage years in New Jersey after her family moved there while her father worked at Bell Laboratories in Parsippany and Troy Hills. When she was 13, Roseanne was in the hospital for a year. Some reports say she had an operation for scoliosis, and others say she had polio, and it left her with a tiny limp and scars. Roseanne was friendly and outgoing, 
Her high school yearbook described her as easy to meet and nice to know. Her friends and family recall that she would often go to bars on Manhattan's west side and read books by herself. On January 3rd, 1973, Roseanne was discovered dead in her seventh floor upper west side apartment. She had last been seen on New Year's Day at a bar called W.M. Tweeds or simply Tweeds. It was located right across the street from her home. The apartment building that Roseanne lived in had once been the Hotel West Pierre. Colleagues at St. Joseph's School became worried when they had not heard from Roseanne for two days. It was unlike her to miss work, and she had not called in to request any time off. So a fellow teacher was sent to her 52nd Street apartment to check on her. The building superintendent, Emilio Gizzi, let the co-worker in because there was no response from inside the apartment, and together they discovered a tragic scene. Roseanne was lying dead on her bed, which was a fold-out sofa bed. She was covered with a blue bathrobe. A 65-pound statue of a woman, made to resemble her, was lying on top of Roseanne's face. It was clear that she had been brutally murdered. Whoever had killed Roseanne seemed raged or angry. She had been stabbed 12 times in the abdomen and 6 in the neck, a total of 18 times, and a red candle was shoved inside her body. This looked like the work of an angry and sexually motivated killer. Police were called to Roseanne's home to survey the grisly and bloody scene and search for clues. They started their investigation by backtracking Roseanne's movements and learned that she was a regular at Tweed's Bar. And, and more if you know, you and I cover a ton of cases, and I, I think when you're talking about stabbings you're talking about a large number of stabbings and especially when you look at this red candle that was shoved inside of roseanne's body police naturally assume that rage is involved there's some type of sexual motivation on the part of the killer doesn't always mean it's true but i think that's kind of where they go to first but I do want to go back to the 65-pound statue. You know, this is something that I don't know that I've ever heard of, encountered, where someone had this big or this heavy of a statue made in their own likeness and was kept in their apartment. And then later turned out to be part of their murder. You know, it was found lying on top of her. Yeah, unfortunately, we couldn't find too much about the statue itself or its origin, if it was some kind of award or some kind of gift. Well, you wouldn't think it would be normally something one person would buy for themselves. You know, I, I could see a family member maybe buying that for Roseanne. You wouldn't think she would have bought it for herself, but who knows? Authorities learned from the owner of WM Tweets a guy by the name of Steve Resnick, that Roseanne visited Tweeds around 10 p.m. on January 1st, and she stayed until around 1 a.m. on the 2nd. When she left with a group of people, headed to another place called the Copper Hatch. Resnick was well acquainted with Roseanne, recalling that she always had a book with her. He also remembered her orders. When alone, she ordered wine. For reading in the corner, and when she was with others, she ordered Johnny Walker Red, which just happens to be one of my favorites. 
The night of the first, Resnick also noticed Roseanne, someone he easily recognized as a well-known regular, talking to a man, someone he didn't know. The bartender at Tweed's also saw this conversation between Roseanne and the stranger and was able to add some more details. The bartender actually noticed not one, but two male patrons that night talking with Roseanne. He described them as nice guys, normal, regular, quiet. Nothing really jumped out to him. One of the men was only there for a short time and left. But he recalled that the other one claimed to be a man named Charlie Smith from Chicago who was in New York looking for work. He was described as tall, big, and handsome. Police talked with other Tweed's patrons and employees and found that Roseanne wasn't the only one to talk with this Charlie Smith that night. Others had as well. They learned that this man spent a lot of time in local bars and had been to Tweed's previously. One of the bar's patrons drew caricatures to make money, and on January 1st, the mysterious Charlie paid this patron to make two quick drawings for him. One was of Mickey Mouse, and the other was of Donald Duck. These same two drawings that were made for Charlie were found in Roseanne's apartment by authorities following her murder. The bartender working at the Copper Hatch on January 1st also remembered Charlie Smith and Roseanne Quinn. This bartender also described Charlie as big and handsome and remembered him having papers under his arm, which were likely the caricatures that had been drawn for him at Tweed's. Based on the descriptions of the man who called himself Charlie Smith, police released a composite sketch in the newspaper on Sunday, January 6th. A 42-year-old man named Gary Guest, a finance executive at an advertising agency who lived just three blocks away from Tweed's, was concerned when he saw the sketch, and he thought it looked like him. Gary Gass flew to Bel Air in Los Angeles, California to see a friend, and he told them about the sketch. He also shared a secret. Gary Gass sat down and opened up to his friend Fred Ebb and Ebb's personal assistant, Gary Greenwood. Gass told the two men about the sketch and the murder. Then he added that on the night Roseanne Quinn was murdered, he and his roommate, John Wayne Wilson, had gone to Tweed's bar together. After hanging out for a while, Gary Guest left, and John Wilson stayed at the bar. Gary went on to say that when he woke up on the morning of January 2nd, his roommate, John Wilson, had not come home yet. When John Wayne Wilson finally did come home, he was distraught and upset and confessed to Gary that he had murdered Roseanne Quinn. Because the sketch that was circulated seemed to be of him and not his roommate who had confessed to the murder, he was scared that the police would think he was the killer. Fred Ebb called Gary Guest's therapist, who in turn procured him an attorney. Guest's new lawyer called investigators and a deal for immunity was quickly made that would keep Gary from facing any charges from not coming forward after he had learned that his roommate had admitted to killing the young school teacher. Police questioned Gary Guest carefully. They wanted to know everything about the relationship between the two men since they first met up until the murder. Guest admitted that he had been at WM Tweeds with his friend John Wayne Wilson on January 1st, but that he had left around 11 p.m. It turned out that John Wilson was a 23-year-old man from Illinois 
who was avoiding criminal charges in Florida. Wilson and Guest had known each other since they met in Times Square in 1970, after which they had an intimate sexual relationship. The nature of that relationship soon turned into friendship and stayed platonic over time with the two men living together. Guest claimed that Wilson admitted to him that he had gone with Roseanne back to her apartment where the two smoked pot together before starting to get intimate. Wilson told Guest that he was too drunk to get an erection, and according to him, Roseanne made fun of him or insulted him, told him to get out of her apartment. He got so angry over this that he went into a rage and killed Roseanne by stabbing her and beating her with the statue. After the murder, Wilson apparently used her shower to clean himself off, got dressed, and wiped down Roseanne's apartment using her white slip. As he took the elevator down the seven floors to the lobby, he also wiped all the buttons. And sure enough, investigators found no prints at all in the elevator. Gary Guest told investigators that Wilson had panicked and fled, and that he had no idea where he went. Guest also allowed authorities to tap his phone, and they attempted to trace his calls to find Wilson's whereabouts. In one conversation, Gary was able to get Wilson to confirm where he was. The next day, in mid-March 1973, Wilson was arrested in Indiana at his mother's house. He was taken back to New York City's Manhattan Detention Complex, also known as the Tombs. On April 19th, he was sent to Bellevue Hospital Center. Wilson's lawyer planned to use an insanity defense that required proof of childhood brain damage despite being at Bellevue Hospital for two weeks. No tests were ever carried out, and Wilson was sent back to the Manhattan Detention Complex. In early May, Wilson threatened to take his own life after a fight with the prison guard, and just days later, on May 5, 1973, he carried out his threat, using bed sheets to hang himself in his cell. Allegedly, a guard had thrown the sheets on his bed as he taunted, do you want to kill yourself with these? Department of Corrections spokesman Agenor Castro said that Wilson was not on suicide watch due to overcrowding issues. Although the person responsible for ending Roseanne Quinn's life never stood trial, the authorities closed the case. As the sordid details emerged about Roseanne Quinn's murder, it gathered a lot of interest. The movie, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which came out in 1977, is based on a best-selling 1975 book about the case. The movie, starring Diane Keaton, Richard Gere, and Tom Berenger, told the tale of a well-liked and respected teacher by day, with a secret life at night, which included alcohol, drugs, and assorted sexual encounters. Did you ever see that movie, Mike? No, I've heard of it, but I've never actually seen it. It's a good movie. It's very, you feel like you're stepping into a time machine because it it's definitely has the 70s. They did a good job really encapsulating. Of course, it was made in the 70s, but some of the things that they referenced, some of the things that I think back to, that, you know, it's been a while since I saw it, but I definitely remember her, uh, Diane Keaton's character reading like the Godfather book, which was hot at the time. Of course, she was in the Godfather, so it was a little bit of a twist, but um, it, it's a good movie. And to see some of those young actors, uh, who were some of the biggest actors in Hollywood, was pretty cool, too. The details of Roseanne Quinn's personal life were laid out for all to see. People that knew Roseanne well claimed that she liked the single life, and she didn't shy away from sexual activity. 
And just to be clear here, we aren't trying to shame or victim blame Roseanne here. She was a consenting adult. And it was the 70s, so there was a lot of sexual freedom and and a lot of other adults were living that kind of lifestyle. I think some people have a hard time reconciling a Catholic school teacher leading what to them may have seemed like a secret double life. But as we see in many murder cases, the police during their investigation uncover all kinds of things about the victims that may not always be flattering or paint them in the best light. At the end of the day, Roseanne was a well-liked and respected teacher who was adored by her students, and she didn't deserve to die. And the one thing that I I wonder about Morph, and again, I mentioned it, I I haven't seen the movie. I don't remember seeing the movie, but we know that movies often sensationalize things and, and especially parts of people's lives when they're based on true stories. You know, to me, this seemed like a woman who was just living her life. You know, we mentioned it. It was the 70s. So the fact that she liked to go to a bar and read and either drink wine or, you know, maybe drink some whiskey. Okay. What's wrong with that? Did she enjoy sexual activity? Well, yeah, it sounds like she did, but you know, so many people in the seventies did. The other thing you have to think about, you know, the seventies, the 60s, 70s, this was before you know, some of the diseases that really kind of changed the way that people looked at casual sex. It was a different time period. You know, none of that in my eyes makes her a person who really was leading some type of high risk lifestyle or double life. None of that really points to that for me. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, this is a single person in New York City in the 1970s, and they're in their 20s. Roseanne's doing what most people did. And I think maybe where the book and the movies sort of are interested in it, because you've got this sort of teacher by day, uh, single person having party style, lifestyle at night, um, I think maybe that that yin and that yang of their other the sides of their life is maybe what made this story interesting to them. And I think a little bit later on, we'll talk about Roseanne's murder uh, and why that became a book. And in the next case we talk about in this episode, why that one didn't. Uh, And maybe it's a difference of one's in a big city, one's not. Uh, One has more of a traditional lifestyle. The other one's a little bit more adventurous and single Um, I think we'll talk a little bit about the differences and why one would lead to a book and a movie and one wouldn't. Well, and maybe the other thing that really they tried to play up on was the fact that she was a Catholic school teacher and that could have had something to do with it as well. Yeah. I think one of the big things is that in Roseanne's case, at the end of the day, the person that took her life was apprehended. In the next case we are discussing, another teacher was murdered over 800 miles from New York City just weeks after Roseanne Quinn was killed. Only this time, investigators wouldn't have the same outcome. 
Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol, drink responsibly, alcohol available only in select markets. In 1973, 26-year-old Ann Klein was a professor of mathematics at the Lockyer College of Business in what is now historic downtown Evansville, Indiana. Evansville is the county seat of Vanderburg County in southwestern Indiana, if you don't think you've ever seen Evansville because you've never been there, you might be wrong. The exterior shots of the 1980s and 1990s show Roseanne were all shot in Evansville. On January 18, 1973, Ann Klein's dead body was found by a student at the old Vanderburg County Courthouse, which was right across the street from the Lockyer College of Business. Naturally, Ann's murder shocked a town of about 140,000 people. The brutality of what happened to Ann, though, is what really stunned everyone, especially those who knew her. No one could think of an enemy or any reason why someone would want to harm Ann. Her students loved her, and it seemed that whoever killed Ann wanted her to suffer. Her dress had been pulled up. She had been stabbed 19 times, including in the neck and chest. One fatal blow severed her aorta. She had also been beaten in the back of the head. It seemed as if she had been ambushed from behind. There was hair in her hand that authorities hoped would help tell them whether it was a man or woman who killed Anne. However, due to the type of sample that was available from the hair, no clues could be gained from analysis. Anne was still wearing her watch and her diamond wedding ring, so robbery didn't seem like a motive. The investigators retraced Anne's movements leading up to her body being found. Her last class of the day had ended around 3 p.m. And apparently after that, Anne went into the alcove at the courthouse for some unknown reason. An autopsy revealed that she died around 3.15 p.m. According to the coroner's report. And based on that, as well as eyewitnesses, they narrowed down about a one-hour window when the killer struck and escaped. Later, they narrowed it down to about a 15-minute window after Anne's last class ended. So, Morph, I think when you talk about that, that's a pretty tight window. You know, you and I are talking about cases and, and you know, time of death that, you know, really sometimes stretches many, many hours over multiple days here. We're down to about a 15 minute window. Yeah. And usually that will help really narrow in on different suspects or potential suspects. I think 
if this was in the year 2021, they could really hone in on maybe surveillance cameras, that kind of thing, and see who was going and coming in that area. Of course, they didn't have that back then. Yeah, but, you know, I think no doubt when you're looking at 15 minutes versus, let's say, I don't know, eight, 10 hours, that's a, that's a big tool in the belt of investigators. It, it, it's much better to have that short time frame. Now, it doesn't always mean that you're going to solve the crime, but you'd obviously always like to be able to whittle it down to the smallest time frame possible. Now, some professors hold office hours and stay after their classes. And apparently, Anne Klein wasn't on her way out of the building or headed home because her purse and jacket was still in her basement office. It was a rainy day. Even if she had wanted to leave the college immediately after her class ended, she would have needed her purse and coat. I think one thing investigators looked at was whether this could have been one of Anne's students or another student at the college because a student easily could have still been near the old courthouse at 3.15 p.m. Anne's husband, Robert Klein, had an alibi. He was working at his job that day as an Alcoa engineer. Some speculate he could have been on his lunch break or even possibly falsified records. Some people point to the murder as being a crime of passion. So, you know, if you look at it or if investigators are looking at it, if it wasn't Ann's husband, who could have or who would have been so angry at her to inflict the type of wounds that were doled out? Interestingly, the week before, there had been a fire at Lockyer College of Business. So they held classes temporarily at the old courthouse just across the street. During this time, Anne taught her class in the basement. Her purse and jacket were still untouched in the office in the basement of the courthouse. When police looked into Anne's life, nothing stood out. And unlike Roseanne Quinn, who we talked about earlier, Anne Klein wasn't into the social scene. In many ways, Anne's case went under the radar. There's no blockbuster movie or best-selling novel inspired by her death. She was loved by many and dedicated to helping her students. She had no known enemies. As we mentioned, she was married to Robert Klein. Together, Anne and Robert were recognized for their church work at Newburgh United Methodist Church, where the couple worked as youth counselors. At the time of her murder, Anne was working on her master's degree in business administration at the University of Evansville. Without a motive in Anne's murder, The police found themselves quickly without leads, and the case went cold. Evansville Police Department Detective Tony Mayhew has believed since at least the year 2000 that he knows who is responsible for the murder of Ann Klein, although he has been unable to name that suspect. A girl in the area had been outside during the attack and had gone inside for a short time, When she returned, there was blood on a white porcelain fountain in the yard, leading investigators to believe that someone who knew the area well had committed the murder and knew where to find an area to clean themselves up. Locals online say that someone clearly passed through an office building just a block from the old courthouse 
as evidenced by blood smears on the front and back doors. And Morph, I think this is a point that you have to talk about. You know, when we're describing a murder as vicious as this murder was, it was close up. It was, you know, stabbing. We always talk about the fact that there's going to be a tremendous amount of blood. So whoever the killer is, by the end of this act, they are going to be covered in blood. And you always wonder, especially when a murder occurs, you know, kind of, I don't want to say out in the open, but in an area where people are, how does an individual do something like this and then kind of just walk away without anyone seeing them essentially covered in blood? It's, it's always a part of these cases that stumps me. I think especially because this was, you know, three, three thirty sometime in that time frame. So it's daylight, you know, it's not like you can slip into the night and someone, you know, because of the poor lighting won't see blood. I think blood would really stand out on your, on your clothing during the daylight hours. And it would be hard to explain away why you've got someone's blood all over your clothes. And that would be memorable to someone. Yeah, no doubt. And, and maybe that's where the idea that this was a person who really had a good understanding of the layout, maybe was able to slip into a bathroom quickly do some cleanup. I, I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that the perpetrator would have had to have cleaned themselves up somehow to not be noticed. There's one odd detail or rumor in the case that Detective Mayu points out. He believes the killer brought two young children to the crime scene that day. It would not be unheard of, though it sounds very risky. The very first man to be convicted of murder due to the use of DNA profiling, Colin Pitchfork, had his young child in the car when he pulled over to commit a murder in the early 1980s. We don't know why Detective Mayu believes that the killer brought two kids to the scene, whether that's based on physical evidence or eyewitness accounts. And it's timely, Morph, that you bring up Colin Pitchfork because he was just released, I believe, in June. Now, he committed his crimes in the UK and you know, obviously different sentencing guidelines, but he is kind of a a footnote just for the mere fact that he was the first person convicted of murder through the use of DNA profiling. But, you know, to think about, okay, he's already out. mm, That one always kind of sticks in my crawl a little bit. When I see people are out, I always try and gauge how many crimes they had and, it, you know, what degree they went to, the, are they remorseful, things like that. I always wonder if they play into someone getting out versus someone that's locked away and the, and the keys sort of thrown away. Yeah, yeah, and he killed two young girls. I mean, I don't want to get into the entire case. We'll probably do it at some point. But, you know, to think about the fact that he was convicted in 87 and, you know, now he's out walking the streets. I think for us in the U.S., that's tough. That's tough to think about, but we know in different areas of the world, sentencing guidelines are different and people do get out earlier. I just thought it was timely that you brought up his name for the mere fact that he was, uh, he was just let out in 2013 news articles announced that police believe they were close to a break in the case. Detective Mayhew believes that whoever murdered Anne 
was scheduled to meet with her there that day. He claims that in 2005, he received a telephone tip that led him to develop his suspect who now lives in Texas. Mayhew is positive that this suspect murdered Ann Klein. He said he was hoping to turn the case over to prosecutors within months. And apparently the killer cut their hand while they were attacking Ann and a blood sample could yield an easy match. So this brings up a lot of questions though that we don't have the answers to, but the questions are all around DNA. Were the authorities able to save and preserve the killer's blood and could that possibly lead to a DNA profile? We don't know the answers. If they do have DNA and a strong suspect, then you have to ask the question, why is this still an unsolved murder? It's been 21 years since the first article appeared saying that police may have a strong lead and it seemed like a grand jury was imminent. According to some online commenters or sleuths, it seems that many familiar with the case know who did it, but the suspect died before authorities were able to get to them. According to these people that supposedly know who did it, the suspect, a man, was married and moved away from Indiana. Detective Mayhew has even claimed to have spoken to the suspect on the phone. Some say the suspect died before he could get in front of a grand jury while others specified that the man died in a Texas jail. If he was in custody, they may still have his DNA, and they might be able to still try and solve the case. There are cold cases solved every day now thanks to forensic genetic genealogy. Some online sleuths suspect that a woman was involved in Anne's killing, due to the amount of emotion it must have taken to stab someone so many times. Others rule out a woman because of the strength it would have taken to overpower Anne but some point to the ambush and the injuries to the back of her body as a sign that the killer would not have had to simply overpower Anne. And some believe a woman was actually the suspect, and it was her husband who died in Texas. But everyone has remained tight-lipped on naming the suspect or suspects if they were married. So the online sleuths morph and commenters, something that you and I talk about in a lot of different cases. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of cold hard facts here but i do think it's important to bring up all of the different theories and this theory of a man and a woman possibly husband and wife being involved is very interesting you know i I think you have to ask the question what would have been the motive was it jealousy on the part of one or the other let's say the female was jealous of Anne for some reason. Maybe her husband liked Anne or had feelings for her. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. And this woman lost control and in a rage killed Anne. I don't know. There's so many different avenues that you can go down. The thing that really kind of throws me is are these online sleuths when they talk about this possible married couple talking about the same suspect as detective Mayhew. That's one of the questions that I have. It seems as though it is somewhat connected because they keep talking about Texas. I think for police, they like to have a motive and that will help them go down the right path and go to the right suspect. And in this case, 
there isn't a clear motive, apparently. We, we can probably rule out robbery since she was found with jewelry and some of her valuables or purse was, wasn't touched. So it does seem like it could be something along the lines of jealousy, uh, um, something along those that path. And I could see a situation where maybe uh, a married woman takes her kids there because she doesn't have childcare and brings them to confront this, uh, to confront Anne, and something happens spur of the moment out of control, maybe not pre-planned and she, you know, she could snap and, you know, a murder all of a sudden is happening. But I could also see a situation where maybe uh, a man could be responsible as well. He's trying to make advances towards Anne. Maybe she didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, or maybe there was something there that the police didn't catch and they had some kind of relationship. She tried to break it off. There's there's any number of things that can happen, and that's the the thing with old cases like this. Without many details, we sort of have to speculate on on some of the the possibilities. And I think the speculation is what attracts the online sleuths, the amateur detectives, because that's what you have. You know, you mentioned a motive. Well, there's a motive to almost every crime. The hard part for investigators is figuring out what it is. That's sometimes very difficult. And like you said, until you have the motive, it's kind of hard to zero in on a suspect. You know, you need that reason why to help guide you down the right path. I think when you look at the two cases that we've discussed in this episode, you have to ask the question, why was Roseanne Quinn's murder blockbuster worthy, worthy of a book or movie? while Anne Klein's remained relatively unheard of by most people, Roseanne Quinn and Anne Klein were both teachers, both very dedicated to their careers, loved by their students, and both were stabbed almost 20 times. Neither case involved robbery. Roseanne's sexual mutilation and the fact that she had been beaten with the statue of herself added to the salaciousness of the tale. Whoever killed each of these women apparently made a quick getaway and pretty clean getaway after the murders occurred. And whoever killed Anne to this point has gotten away with it. I think perhaps the reason one case fueled a book and movie deal was because of the outgoing nature and nightlife of a Catholic school teacher in the big city. But I wonder if maybe it was the city itself that was the draw big city New York compared to much smaller Evansville, Indiana. You know, Manhattan and the Upper West Side do sound more glamorous, and it's a great backdrop to a movie or book. Manhattan itself was a suitable movie topic. Woody Allen's 1979 hit of the same name was just one of many movies taking place around the city in the 70s. That decade really loved New York City and its stories. New York News made the headlines more often than anything from Indiana. Yeah, I think if you're looking at two similar cases and you're deciding which case to write a book about that. And then obviously later to be made into a movie, it makes a lot of sense to choose the one that happened in New York city. Number one, there are a lot of people that live in New York city who are going to be more interested in that crime than they would be in 
Evansville, Indiana. We just said Evansville at the time had what, 140,000 people who lived there. So I'm really not blaming, let's say, an author for choosing that topic and not blaming the folks that make movies for choosing something that happened in New York City because you're going to have right off the bat a bigger built-in audience for your material. It's just the way things work. The same can be said about things that happen in L.A. Yeah, I think anytime you have a big city component to it, it just makes for a larger story, it seems. Yeah, because, you know, the city is almost a character in and of itself, right? New York City is a character in a lot of movies. L.A. is a character in a lot of movies. You're not going to have really the same, most likely, in a place like Evansville, Indiana. But that's not to say that the Hoosier state of Indiana is a stranger to high profile cases. You know, one of the most talked about cases online since 2011 is the disappearance of Indiana University student Lauren Spirer. The Delphi murders took place in Indiana in 2017, and it seems more the longer that they go unsolved, the more they're talked about. The Delphi murders is a huge topic in the online true crime community. 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German were killed in Delphi, Indiana, near the Monon High Bridge. We covered their case in episode 48 of Criminology. And in 1988, a little girl named April Marie Tinsley was abducted and murdered in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For years, her killer taunted residents and police with notes dropped around town, bragging about the murder and making threats to kill again. Finally, in 2018, April's killer, John D. Miller, was arrested after genetic genealogy led investigators to him. We covered April's case back in season four of criminology. So, You mean, obviously, every state has their share of high-profile cases. But back to the two cases in this episode, if you're an author and you're deciding between the two to cover, it makes sense to me that you would cover something that happened in New York City. Now, unless you're an author based in Indiana. Ann Klein's murder was definitely not overlooked by locals in and near Evansville, Indiana. To this day... Many residents there have been afraid to step foot into the old courthouse basement, and others report an eerie, cold, lonely feeling when they've had to pass through the alcove of the basement in the building. In years past, there have been haunted houses held at the old courthouse for Halloween, specifically in the basement in the alcove where Anne Klein was murdered. Some feel it's a fitting place for such a thing, while others feel it's disrespectful to have a Halloween amusement focused on haunting centered where someone was actually murdered. The fact that no one has ever been charged for Anne Klein's murder meant many women lived in fear of the downtown Evansville area. Someone out there brutally murdered a beloved teacher for no discernible reason. They were angry, obviously dangerous. And and I think most troubling of all, they were free to kill again. This killer was still possibly walking around their town. 
maybe even still attending Lockyer College of Business. While there are similarities to the murders of these two teachers, there are some differences. Roseanne Quinn had an unfortunate intimate encounter that led to her death. She invited a stranger into her home and a spur of the moment event led to her murder. In the case of Anne Klein, someone seemingly surprised her and attacked her from behind in a public place, but she was already in the alcove. So, you know, one of the questions is, was she welcoming someone she knew inside? If so, they took the opportunity that maybe when she turned her back on them to attack her. If they had small children with them, as Mayhew believes, then it stands to reason. They knew their visit with Anne would be a short one. This points to someone setting up a meeting with Anne after school to meet with her for something that was going to take a very short period of time. Now, maybe this person planned to kill Anne or... Maybe a conversation got heated, and in a rage, they attacked her. It just seems odd that it would have gone wrong in the alcove and not in the basement or the basement office where they would have been more hidden. And the one thing we really haven't spent much time on that I think we need to talk about is kids, the possibility that kids were there when Anne Klein was murdered. If so, they may have seen something. Now, we don't know how old they would have been. We don't know what they would have seen, and and we don't know what their memory would be today. But it's possible that if they did witness something, there could be children of the perpetrator who are now adults who have information. And I think that's an interesting aspect to that theory. And, and one that has to be explored. Yeah, you mentioned not really knowing their ages, and you wonder if they were old enough to recognize what was going on, or old, you know, old enough where they would remember it today. You know, almost fifty years later. But one thing I wonder is if they did see that, they might be scarred, and and I wonder how that affected them. Because even if they were younger, uh, you, you think it could have some kind of implications on on the rest of their their lives, witnessing something like that. Yeah, you, you would think it it would. Now, it's hard to believe that a parent would commit a cold-blooded murder right in front of their children, but sadly, we know it occurs. I think there's hope that genetic genealogy can help close Anne Klein's case if they do have the killer's DNA. If the suspect is still out there and was, say, a freshman in college at the time of Anne's murder, they could be under 70 years old still. As of now, Anne Klein's death remains unsolved. And the killer, up to this point, has gotten away with it for almost 50 years. In comparison, while Roseanne Quinn's killer was never convicted of her death due to his suicide, her case was able to have some finality. So, Morph, as we wrap up this episode, you know, two interesting cases, some similarities, some differences. I think, obviously, the big difference being that In the case of Roseanne Quinn, authorities believe that they know who killed her. Now, you could say the same for the case of Ann Klein's murder as well, but they haven't been able to name that person or really move forward with anything. And and I think that's kind of the perplexing aspect of, of her case. 
Detective Mayhew seems to be so adamant that he knows who this person is or was. See, that's the thing. We don't even know if the person is still alive. Maybe he believes he knows who did it, but they can't do anything about it now at this point anyway. We don't know because they've been pretty tight-lipped on some of the aspects. And I, For me, this episode's sort of been a comparison between these two women that were murdered the same year. We've talked about them being teachers and sort of compare their, their lifestyles and what was known about them. But my big takeaway in this case is that it, it seems that both of these victims were very instrumental to their students and very uh, well-respected. And those students missed out on having good teachers in their lives once these murders happened. And I think that's, they're sort of victims themselves because they lost out on, on having um, the guidance of these two great teachers. But it's not just those students that they had currently think about, you know, how long these two women would have taught and all the young people that missed out on, you know, their guidance. It's, it's sad. It really is. The other thing that's really sad to me more in this case is the portrayal in some of the research. And I think in the book and the movie as well about Roseanne Quinn. You know, I think some of that was sensationalized. It, it, unfortunately, a lot of times is. It was. It's almost as if why was this Catholic school teacher out at the bars? <laughs> well, what's wrong with it? But you know, when you sensationalize it and you kind of, kind of make it this huge topic, I don't know. I, I just think it casts a negative light on her where none should be. She wasn't doing anything wrong and she wasn't doing anything that millions of other single New Yorkers weren't doing at the time. But that's one thing that really kind of bugs me in some of these cases where, you know, they try to portray the victim in, in somewhat of a negative light. And I don't like that. Yeah. It's sort of re-victimizing them after they're already dead. Yeah. It's not good. Thanks goes out to Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you love the show, but you haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. You can leave a review as well if you want to, but keep telling your friends. Word of mouth about the Criminology Podcast really goes a long way. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. Or by joining our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. So more if that's it for another episode of Criminology. But we'll be back with everyone next week with a brand new episode. So for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you all next week. Take care, everyone.